it is a joy to see so many faces once again and to see many of you who have come back for the first time. So we're glad to see you and to worship together. It brings joy. I know it brings joy to my heart, and I'm sure it's the same for every one of us as we gather. We have joy in our hearts as we see one another and are able to visit with each other uh, and just say hello and greet one another. As we, uh, as we look at God's Word this morning, uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, as Wes said, the theme being discipleship, the title of the message this morning is Disciples of Jesus. And as we look at this text, this really is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being disciples, those who are his followers. And so as we consider what Jesus is saying and open his holy word, we recognize that Jesus has something specific to say to two groups of people, those who follow him and those who reject him, right? Because according to Scripture and the biblical worldview, there are two categories that people fit into. One is those who are followers of Jesus, disciples, and those who are not disciples of Jesus. And so as we, uh, as we look at God's Word this morning, I, I want us to see what Jesus is saying about his disciples or to his disciples. He's saying Christians are people who love God above all else and love others as self. Christians are people who love God above all else, and love others as self. You know, in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And this comes on the heels of the transfiguration. That's when Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. And he, God the Father, his glory appears. Moses and Elijah are there. And Jesus is transfigured into uh, into glory as well, and so he's 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 just this. It's glory. The God's glory is there. They they say they call it the uh, scholars call it the Shekinah glory. All right, and so this is God's glory, and the disciples are up there on the mountain with him. So this is immediately following the transfiguration, where he talks about the Exodus with Moses and Elijah, and we talked about it's this new Exodus, right? Moses in Deuteronomy leads God's people. Uh, in Exodus, rather, leads God's people out of the land of Egypt. And now we have this happening with Jesus. In fact, they're talking. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about this departure, which is the word Exodus. And it's intentional. So he's talking about what Jesus is about to do as he goes to Jerusalem. And so he's about to lead the people of God. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, he sent out 70 or 72 disciples ahead of him, and he sent them out to heal the sick and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to cast out demons. And one of the implications of him sending out this 70, as Shane alluded to last week, was to show that the kingdom of God has worldwide impact. Ministry isn't just for the 12 apostles. Ministry is for all who follow Jesus. They all go out. These 70 are sent out into the towns ahead of Jesus in order to proclaim the kingdom of God. So this is good news for all people, for us, for the world. And in verse 17, what we see is this joyful return by these people who have gone out and they have proclaimed the kingdom. In verse 17, God's joyful kingdom is what's highlighted in verses 17 through 24. It says the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
one of the things we note about joy as we read through Scripture is that joy is a virtue which ought to be commonplace for disciples of Jesus. And the joy that we ought to have as disciples isn't because of the good works that we might do, though that's what's happening for these followers of Jesus, right? They're coming back, they're saying they're full of joy because of what? Because of what they have done. Because they have seen that uh, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But the reality is that we're not to be joyful people because of the good works that we might do. Certainly, joy isn't going to be determined by the, the, the changing circumstances of our lives. And it's not because we in ourselves are something worth noting. But the reality of what Jesus is saying is the reason that we ought to have joy is because it, it's all about what Christ has done. It's not because we're something. It, it's because of who we are in Christ. It's because of what Christ has done for us. The foundational reason for joy is not what we do, but it, it's what God in Christ has done for us. It's our security in Christ. And so that's where Jesus is pointing the disciples. And so we see these joyful messengers in verse 17. It was incredible what they had accomplished. It was miraculous. These 70 that had gone out, I want you to wrap your minds around that. The incredible works of ministry that they accomplished for God's kingdom, they were miraculous. And for them, never had they been so full, never had they felt so alive and empowered and purposeful as when they were out doing this ministry that Jesus had sent them on. Casting out demons, healing the sick, and proclaiming the kingdom of God is what they were doing. But Jesus' reply was incredible. Jesus' reply, look at what he says there in verse 18. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the advancing kingdom of God puts Satan to flight. Jesus came to defeat Satan. He came to defeat the accuser. And his disciples are actually taking part in this great battle, which is going to culminate at the end of Luke's gospel in Jerusalem, where Jesus has now set his face to go. Right? But it also says that he, he had given them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. What's he talking about here? Talking about literal serpents. I've got a picture I want to show you that I came across this week. It's kind of graphic. Can you tell what that is? That's a serpent. And I had the authority to tread on that serpent. All right. But I use a shovel to tread on it. What really happened was I was walking out of the fellowship hall doors. It's a copperhead. I was walking out of the fellowship hall doors. I was getting some water to bring back for work day from Michelle's truck. And as I'm walking back to the door, I was about to pin the water between my leg and the door so I could open up the other side. You know, it's the double doors in the fellowship hall. And as I looked down, I, I saw this copperhead laying in the crack by the door. And I, like, immediately, I just, my adrenaline just shot through my body. And I jumped back and put the waters down, ring, got a shovel, and I came and I, I killed it. All right, so is this what Jesus is talking about, to be able to tread on serpents? I mean, there are some 
who try to handle serpents, right? They take verses like this and others and actually try to handle serpents as part of the authority that Jesus has given them. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Serpents and scorpions are symbolic of, of evil. And what Jesus is telling the disciples is that he has, he has actually given them authority over and power over evil. And this is seen as they go out and they cast out demons. And what Jesus is saying is he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven in the sense of he saw Satan fleeing, his power being squashed. The powerful works of Jesus' followers put Satan to flight. Jesus had given them authority over the enemy, snakes and scorpions. But he tells the joyful returning disciples, here's what he tells them, don't rejoice, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he isn't saying that they, they shouldn't rejoice in spiritual power and great things that are done for the kingdom of God. Instead, what he's saying is there's a deeper, there's a better joy. It's one that's based on the fact that our names are written in heaven. It's based on this reality that we have eternal security in Christ and can know the eternal security that we have in Christ so that nothing in this life can ultimately harm us. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Names are written in heaven. He's talking about eternal security. Scripture, scripture speaks of the book of life. Listen to, follow along, look on the screen and see how Scripture affirms this throughout. In Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two, it says, But now if you will forgive their sin, Moses speaking to the Lord, now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Or Psalm 69, 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Or Philippians 4, 3, yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And finally, Revelation twenty fifteen, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This book of life seems to be what Jesus is alluding to and speaking about when he says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that there is an eternal security for your souls, friends, our joy and life ought to be derived from what God in Christ has already done for us. So my prayer, Father, help me to know this truth and to be exhilarated by it. Help us to know this truth and to be exhilarated by it. So while we ought to be grateful for the gifts that God gives us, the influence, the success that we might have that's God given, there's a better joy. There's one that's not based upon things that we do. There's one that's not based upon the amount of spiritual battles that we might win, i.e. the 70 or 72 who go out in Jesus' name. It's not based on the size of crowd that's gathered in a worship center to worship Jesus. It's not based on the number of souls 
saved through your evangelism. It's not based on the number of people who know your name, though all of those things are good. They, they are not inherently bad. The joy that Jesus calls us to is it's the joy of of knowing that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's the better joy, the joy of knowing that our names are written in heaven because God has chosen to write my name in heaven. I can rejoice because I am a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. And being citizens of God's heavenly kingdom gives us great joy. It just fills us with joy. And Jesus also rejoices in the Holy Spirit in verses 21 through 24. Look at what he says. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. Jesus is rejoicing over God's revelation that has been made known to his people. The wise and the learned are the ones who rejected Jesus. It was the religious establishment of the day, the, the priests, the scribes, the elders of Israel. But then he also speaks about how God has revealed his truth to children. And then look who the children are. The children are these 70, the, the common people that he's sent out, right? It's not the religious elite of the day. It's the commoners. The tax collectors and the publicans, the fishermen. But isn't this the way of the kingdom of God? Isn't this a way that God is he's pleased to reveal himself to the humble and the teachable? First Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Right? If we're going to boast, we're going to boast in the cross of Christ. Jesus rejoices that God has revealed himself, made himself known to his people, and he has done that through Jesus himself. And he also rejoices over the Father's will being accomplished. Look, God in Christ has revealed himself to us. Look at what he says in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one who knows the son or no one rather knows this knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son in anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Jesus reveals God the Father to us. He reveals God the Father to us because he truly knows who the Father is. Jesus is the revealer of truth. He is the revealer of God the Father. This is what happens to the disciples on the Emmaus Road even when he, he opens their eyes to understand the Scripture, right? Before, they, they weren't understanding what the Scripture was and how it was connected to Jesus from the Old Testament and New Testament. And what it all had to do with his death. But then he opens their eyes to understand the truth of Scripture. It's the same thing he does for his disciples. As we go to him in prayer and study his word, Jesus opens our eyes. When we ask him, when we seek him, he opens our eyes by his spirit to teach us the truth of his word. And this doesn't matter if you're a, a brand new believer or you've been a believer for 60 years. The process of discipleship is continual until we draw our last breath and we are in the presence of God. 
that Jesus is the revealer of the Father. John has already talked about this in his gospel and in his in his introduction, John chapter one, verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known that word made him known. It's he's explained him to us. He has explained the father to us. This is what Jesus came to do. Explain the father to us to show us the way. And so Jesus rejoices over the father's will being accomplished and that will being that he has revealed himself. He has sent Christ to come at this point in time to reveal himself. But then finally, we see that the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning the kingdom of God has arrived. Look at verses 23 and 24. Turning to the disciples, he said to them privately. So he's just addressing the disciples and he's saying, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. There have been a lot of prophets who want to see what you see, but they haven't seen it. And then he says they wanted to hear what you hear and they haven't heard it. But you, you've seen it and you've heard it. God has included you in his plan is what he's telling the disciples. The disciples are experiencing what all of Scripture had been pointing to. The arrival of God's Messiah, the arrival of the kingdom And so today we know and we experience God's faithfulness in a way that the prophets could not. We believe in the coming of Christ, the Messiah. We believe in his death, his burial and his resurrection from the grave. We believe that he triumphed over death and sin and won the victory. And then we believe that Jesus ascended to the father and will one day soon return to judge the living and the dead. And by his death, his burial and his resurrection, We believe that Jesus defeated sin and death, made atonement for our sins and invites us to the resurrection life that can only be found in him. This is what we believe as disciples of Jesus. And so we believe that even now the kingdom of God is active. The kingdom of God is is working through the church. God is about redeeming humanity and he's about using each and every one of us in the mission of redeeming humanity. And we believe that now his power at work in us. Can overcome evil in the world. This is why we are ambassadors for Christ. His power at work in us can overcome darkness and sin. And listen, no No, no power in the world, in the cosmos, can overthrow or thwart God's kingdom. We affirm this and we believe this as disciples. And this is ultimately why God's kingdom is a joyful kingdom, because he is a sovereign ruler with all authority and with all power. That's what it means to be sovereign ruler. And he's our savior. Took upon the flesh of man, became like us, and sacrificed himself in order to redeem us. What a glorious Savior. That's the reason to have joy. It's not because of the things in life that give us pleasure. The reason to have joy is because of what God in Christ has done for us, He's paved the way for us to enter eternity. And by believing in Jesus, we can have our names written 
in heaven. What a glorious truth. Jesus continues to teach the disciples, and as he does, he's telling them that disciples of Jesus will love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This is what the parable of the Good Samaritan is really about. As I read this, I thought to myself, you know, maybe this is how lawyers get a bad rap, right? Right, Dale? Not all lawyers are bad, right? But this guy comes, and he begins testing Jesus. And as he's testing Jesus, he's got this question for Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what we need to realize is this lawyer, a scribe, he was one who studied the law of God in order to teach it to God's people. But he comes up with a question that is the most important question a person could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What needs to happen to make me right with God? That's another way that we might ask the question. From God's perspective, what is it that needs to happen in my life in order that he would give me eternal life? And so Jesus asked him, being a lawyer, he says, what's written in God's law? Right? He goes, goes Old Testament, goes back to Deuteronomy. What's written in God's law? And the lawyer, he said, even says to him, how do you read it? And this is a question of interpretation for Jesus listening to the scribe at this point. He wants to know how the scribe, how the lawyer interprets God's law, because he's the one who's teaching God's people. And so in verse 27, his answer is spot on. He sums up Deuteronomy 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus affirms the lawyer, do this and you will live, he says. In other words, to fully love God and love neighbor as self is the way of being a kingdom citizen. That is what Jesus is saying to this lawyer, to this scribe. But like the rest of humanity, the scribe falls short of loving neighbor and in the most complete sense. He wants to justify himself, and so he asks the question that all of us, not many of us, might be asking this morning. Okay, so define neighbor, right? I want to know who my neighbor is. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to know who my neighbor is. Anyone read this passage and ever ask that question? Okay, Jesus, who's my neighbor? I think we all have at some point. Jesus' answer is radical. It is shocking. You see, the lawyer doesn't have a problem loving people who were like him. Those who were Jews. Those who were among the elite group within Judaism, perhaps. He didn't have a problem loving people who believed as he did. Or who were of his ethnic origin. These neighbors can be easily loved. And I think this passage really speaks to the current events that we're seeing in our country right now. Jesus turns the tables on, on the lawyer, and he tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, if we know anything about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, we know that they despise one another. And so Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And it's incredible to see how Jesus flips the tables 
but also how the kingdom of God just flips the tables on the kingdom of the world. The Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds, and if that sounds like a derogatory statement, it really is. When the northern tribes went into captivity, they intermarried with the people of Samaria. And so the southern tribes no longer considered the Jews, uh, the, the Samaritans of the northern tribe, and no longer considered them true Jews. There was deep animosity between the people. And so they hated and they despised one another. And although the Samaritans continued to fear and serve God, they were disowned by the tribe of Judah from the south. And so for this parable, Jesus reaches all the way back into 2 Chronicles 28, 8 through 15, and tells a story for the modern reader of his day, for the listener to understand, one that the lawyer certainly wouldn't miss. There was a war between the sons of Judah in the south and the Samaritans in the north. And the Samaritans handed, handed a beat down to the tribe of Judah. And they were carrying 200,000 prisoners of war back to Samaria when Obed, a prophet, said, we can't bring them back. Or Oded, I'm sorry, a prophet said, we can't bring them back. God will not let us subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem to slavery. And so he said his wrath is going to come down on on us if we do this. And so in Second Chronicles 28, 15, it records that the men rose and took the captives and with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. So this is the prisoners of war, right? And they clothed them and gave them sandals and provided them with food and drink and anointed them and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys. They brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and then they returned to Samaria. Have you ever heard of an army defeating someone, significantly defeating them, and then exercising compassion and mercy on them and bringing them back into their territory and letting them go? You've never heard of that, right? This is the story that Jesus pulls from in the parable to show this comparison between Samaritans and how Samaritans have kept the law. So the parable is a shocking denunciation to the lawyers and to the religious worldview of the religious elite. It says in no uncertain terms that the kingdom of God and eternal life is open to all peoples of the earth. It says my neighbor is the lowly and the vulnerable. It says class has no bearing. It says ethnicity has no bearing on who my neighbor is. And so we know how the story goes. We read it a while ago. A man was severely beaten, robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. Maybe he had been rolled into the ditch. And the first person who came by was what? Priest, right? The priest comes by and we would think, okay, this is a priest, God's man, in service to God. He surely is going to stop and take care and check on this man. But that's not what happens. He passes him by. And he probably passes him by because he knows if he touches him, then he'll be unclean. And then he would be disqualified from his priestly duties for a period of time. So the priest had more important things to do, and he didn't want to give his time to help this man. The same could be said for the Levite. He would have temple duties as well. And by touching this man, he too would have been unclean. So too much was at stake for him to help the man out. But what does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan coming by, he does what the priest and the Levite would not. He helps the man. Remembering that Samaritans are despised by the Jews, 
but still loved and served God, it's likely that for the Samaritan, he knows as well for him by touching this man, he would be unclean. But he shows the wounded man compassion. Familiar to Second Chronicles 28 and verse 34, it says he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verses 36 and 37 tell us that Jesus says to them and ask him. The one who is who is the look at verse 36 and 37, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the answer in verse 37, the well, the one who showed mercy. And so Jesus tells him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus says the one who is neighbor and worthy of eternal life isn't the priest or it isn't the Levite, though they were in God's service. It's the despised Samaritan. He's the hero of the story. He's the one who's shown mercy. You see what happens here. The gospel scandalizes and upends the worldview that promotes hatred and division and prejudice. And it maximizes differences. The biblical worldview, it emphasizes love through compassion and mercy for all peoples of the earth. The call of the kingdom is the radical call to neighborly love. Who is my neighbor? Fellow image bearers of God. Everyone is my neighbor. So Jesus redraws the boundaries of God's people, showing that the gospel reaches across all borders. Jesus calls kingdom citizens to reorient their lives from worldly living to kingdom living. Compassion, mercy, and love are the hallmarks of kingdom citizens. And so on this side of the cross, we understand more clearly what Jesus is driving at. He is the one who empowers people to live with this kingdom ethic. He is the one who empowers us to love one another and to love one another with compassion and mercy. He is the one who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between the nations, between the peoples, right? The word ethnos, ethnic. He is the one who overcomes the division between the races as it's improperly termed today with the good news of the gospel, right? We have one race, the human race, different ethnicities. But God is the creator and architect of us all. We are all image bearers of God. And as such, we have value and worth assigned by our creator. And the call of the gospel is to love one another. To be neighborly, compassionate and merciful. Friend, love for God increases love for neighbor. Kingdom living is the radical call of neighborly love. And so it's inconceivable for kingdom citizens to harbor prejudice in our hearts. Kingdom living relinquishes prejudices. Kingdom living relinquishes prejudices. The question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In part, it's been answered. But the final portion of the passage this morning answers the, the other part by 
pointing back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, 3, it says, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, as we think about what is happening with Mary and Martha Martha here in this last section of chapter 10, think about it through the lens of man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the third point this morning is disciples of Jesus love God. The contrast between Martha and Mary show us the difference between active and contemplative spiritual living. And I know that we need both active and contemplative spiritual living. And so it's interesting in one sense that this is how Luke chooses to, uh, to pit uh, the story and to continue to build on what he's teaching in chapter 10. But the contrast of Martha and Mary show us one being active spiritual living, the other being contemplative spiritual living. And I think from this vantage point, we can learn a great deal. Mary is the one who is in the right. Jesus says in verse 42, she has chosen the good portion. And so this this is 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 part of the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's to choose the good portion. Martha is full of service, right? But to the point that what does Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. She's busy about serving. Mary's chosen to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in what people can or can't do that we miss what God is doing in our midst or desiring to do in us. For Mary, she wanted to learn from Jesus. Her love for God was evident in that she was going to sit at Jesus' feet and she was going to choose the greatest thing over the good thing. And in Martha, in Martha we see a person who's busy about serving. But get this, on the inside she's a mess. How do we know that? Well, it seems that Martha is busy about covering everything up and making sure everything is in place, as we would say, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, right? This is hospitality at its finest. Jesus has come to my house, and everything's got to be in place, right? I mean, that's what she's saying or thinking. But on the inside, she's anxious. She's troubled about many things. She's busy, busy, busy. And she's not just taking time to enjoy his presence. So here what we see is one who is busy, the other who is contemplative. On the inside, we see Martha being angry and bitter and anxious and all for what? Jesus is there. He can make bread, for goodness sakes, right? He, he's there. How often does our anxiety stem from walking in our own way and not walking in God's way. How often does our anxiety stem from neglecting what is greatest at the cost of only what is good? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Love for God means 
following Jesus. Love for neighbor means loving like Jesus. And here what we see, love for God following Jesus is evidenced in the greatest way by Mary who is sitting at Jesus' feet learning and being taught. But there's something that's scandalizing about the picture here. Do you know what it is? Jesus is receiving hospitality from Martha, a woman. And it even goes further than that. Mary has decided she's going to sit at Jesus' feet. And so the gospel continues to scandalize. Not only does it confront racism or ethnic prejudice, or which, which it says is anti-kingdom of God, anti-Christian, but it also confronts, a sense, in a sense, sexism as anti-Christian. We might say God's, God's kingdom is pro-humanity, right? It's pro-image-bearer, period. Most, most often we see the Martha Mary story in light of what I've already spoken, Active versus contemplative spiritual living. While both of those are necessary in the Christian life, I think we need to note, as one commentator says, the boundary-breaking call of Jesus. So we have a Jewish rabbi receiving hospitality from Martha, a woman, and we have Mary doing what is only acceptable for the men to do, sitting at Jesus' feet, sitting with the other disciples and listening to him teach. Now, get Martha's perspective here. Martha thinks Jesus is going to be on her side because she goes up to Jesus complaining, expecting that Jesus is going to say, Martha, you're right, Mary, get on. Bring us the food because that's what Martha sees herself as needing to do. So Mary, instead of knowing her place and serving the men, sits down at the feet of Jesus to learn. I love it. It's incredible how Jesus breaks these cultural boundaries. Verse 40, Martha says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me then. Jesus, that's when he replies. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion and it won't be taken from her. Mary stands for those women who hear Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God. They know that God is calling them to listen carefully so that they can speak of it, too. And so Jesus affirms her right to be there and says that she has chosen the good portion. But what is the good portion? The good portion is learning in the presence of Jesus. The good portion is hearing and learning the word of God. It's applying it to life so that she can teach others. Martha's anxious and troubled about many things. And Martha's answer to anxiousness is is to have more help. Her answer to too much to do is to get more help to get all the things done. But Jesus' answer is to say Mary has chosen the right thing. Perhaps the best thing that we can do is slow down and spend time with Jesus. You see, Mary's hunger for holiness outshines Martha's hunger for hurriedness in the text. Jesus jettisons the cultural norms that relegate and confine Mary to a certain type of service. And he says what Mary has chosen is the best. Isn't this the case for all disciples of Jesus? Joy in the kingdom doesn't come from what we do. 
It comes from what God in Christ has done for us. Jesus empowers his disciples to love selflessly. Kingdom citizens love neighbor as self. Kingdom citizens love like the Samaritan with compassion and mercy. They see all people as image bearers of God and they seek to see people as God sees them. Jesus calls us to take up the mantle of Mary here and to abide with him. Like Mary in choosing the good portion, so we too ought to choose the good portion, which is Jesus. Christians are people who love God above all else and love others as self. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying, here's what must happen to inherit eternal life. Love God and love neighbor. How do we love God? Well, we follow Jesus. How do we follow Jesus? We submit our lives to him. We surrender our lives to him. We confess our sin before him. We pledge our allegiance and our loyalty to Christ alone. Love God and love neighbor. How do we love neighbor? The Samaritan's a good start. Compassion and mercy. God, give me eyes to see and to love as you love. As God who loved me through Christ, let me love others in the same manner in which Christ has shown love to me. That he gave his life. He laid down his life. He sacrificed himself so that I might have eternal life. Let me then deny self so that I might love others into the kingdom of God. Let me deny myself that I might be willing to go out of my way to exercise compassion and mercy toward others. This is the kingdom way. And this is what Jesus calls his disciples to. Perhaps this morning you're thinking, I can never live up to that standard. Well, the good news is you don't have to live up to that standard. Jesus has already done that. When he gave his life, when he died, rose from the grave and ascended to heaven and sent his spirit down, he has already made the sacrifice. And he has given you, given all who follow him, the ability to walk in his power and to live by his spirit. And so being a disciple of Jesus means we are empowered by his spirit. We follow him. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as Savior, to follow him, to walk as his disciple, I would love to talk to you about that. And I'd be willing to talk to you about it at the end of service or even to talk to you about it on the phone during the week or send me an email and we'll connect and and talk. But if you have questions about being a kingdom citizen, about following Jesus, having eternal life, I would love to talk to you about it. Maybe this morning for you, you know the Lord is calling you to surrender your life to him. I want to encourage you to surrender your life to him. It, It involves a prayer confessing that he is Lord, you are not, confessing that you have sinned, And asking him to forgive you of that sin and pledging to follow him and asking for him to lead you by his spirit. And perhaps for you, believer, there's an area in your life that you need to confess to the Lord. An area of your life where you're saying, you know, I've I've recognized that this is an area of sin or a stronghold for me. And you need to confess that before the Lord. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Confess it before the Lord. Surrender it and continue to walk with Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a song for our time of, uh, of prayer, commitment, and response. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to work in us, continue to lead us and direct us. I pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, empower us to live for you, empower us to show the world, to show our community your love that resides within us. So that as your word says, they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. For it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?